0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Christians go in in procession. They do two things, I think. They they express repentance. Litanies of repentance were always processional things in the early days of the church. They signalise that they're getting from one place to another, quite simply by moving. We want to move on from this terrible legacy. But also, processions are a means of celebration. We say we're grateful that God gave us, at long last, the gift of clear sight which enabled Christians to see what was wrong with the slave trade and we celebrate and give
0: thanks for that. Taking to the streets back in 2007, that's Rowan Williams, then Archbishop of Canterbury, marching to commemorate the bicentenary of the UK Parliament's abolition of the slave trade. Hi, I'm Meredith Lake, and on Soul Search today, one of the world's most prominent Christians. On politics, religion, social justice in our common life, what kind of spirituality can help renovate our politics and heal divided societies? For a decade to 2012, Rowan Williams was one of the world's most important religious leaders, up there with the Pope for many Christians, but he was an unusual head of the Anglican Communion, partly because he's not from England, but from Wales. Williams is also a poet, literary critic, scholar and theologian, currently Master of Magdalen College at the University of Cambridge. He was in Sydney recently to give a public lecture at the Australian Catholic University, where he was welcomed onto country by Gawega woman Teresa Adler, whom you might remember from our NADOC Week program.
1: I embrace all of you this evening as we gather together to welcome Lord Rowan Williams to the Australian Catholic University, official guest and old guest. Lord Rowan Williams, it is a great honour to welcome you onto my country of my ancestors the Kamaragal clan. May I also thank Teresa for her welcome and say in our own Indigenous language, deel ho'galan Thank you from the heart for your welcome here.
0: Williams joked that he was enjoying a spot of respite from the turmoil around Brexit. But our politics are hardly free from polarisation and division we're also facing the challenge of overcoming political tribalism. And Williams has plenty of ideas about how we might do it, beginning with rethinking some of our founding myths.
1: The very word tribalism tells a story. A story often about the demeaning or marginalising of the cultures that we call tribal. Readers of Anna Karenina will remember that Anna Karenina's ill-fated husband, Alexei, is a minister for tribal affairs in Tsarist Russia. And if you look at the history of British Imperial India, you will find the same special provision for tribal people. Tribal peoples are people who form a category that needs special administrative measures on the assumption that they represented a departure from the norm of social life or citizenship. And so to speak of tribalism, or of tribal attitudes and behavior, is it seems to mark out certain kinds of human behavior as aberrations from the norm. These behaviors may be intriguing, even sympathetic in certain ways, but they are ultimately, in the eyes of colonial power, both doomed and deviant. They are forms of life that are at best noble, but destined for extinction. And the rational, normal, dominant group will, where necessary, with whatever expressions of regret and crocodile tears, act as the agents of fate and accelerate this extinction by one or another form of genocide. It may be unequivocal, literal extermination. And the history of indigenous peoples in Australia and Tasmania illustrates a good deal of that. It may equally well be what's now widely recognised as cultural genocide, like the native schools of Canada, who saw it as their calling to, to quote one statement of their purpose, to kill the Indian in the child. Genocide can wear the dress of benign progressivism as well as that of murderous violence. So I'm beginning by acknowledging that to use the very word tribal carries a bit of a moral charge with it and some of the ironies of this are part of what I want to explore in this lecture. In the eyes of enlightened colonialists, the tribal is that which is doomed because it's failed to change. In the prevailing mythology of modernity, what is normal is a particular kind of rationality which sees itself as universal, as opposed to the partial and unreasoning local traditions that have been overthrown by enlightenment. What is unfamiliar or impenetrable to the rational mind is thus not just something other, it's something past. It doesn't belong now. And as we'll see shortly, this now is a moment that's presented as timelessly and obviously true. The illegitimacy of non-modern social patterns, tribal life in the most literal sense, lies in the fact that they belong to another age. What modernity confronts and opposes is, naturally enough, the past. What is other to modernity is essentially over and its persistence is an anomaly. What's more, it is, again, naturally enough, seen as imperfectly human. So that life lived within these non-modern terms is life which is less than it should be. Non-modern life is a deprived life. And so the efforts to eradicate it to kill the Indian in the child, are part of a struggle for the fullness of human experience. The struggle that shows we are, in the odd but persistent phrase, on the side of history. So much is part of the mythology of modernity as it's evolved in the last couple of centuries. But as we all know, it's never quite so simple. The uncomfortable fact is that non-modern, non-standard patterns of life haven't gone away. We, in commas, we, rational moderns, are still as a matter of fact, contemporary with our supposedly displaced predecessors. And the recent history in the 20th century of massive and overt genocide has left us uneasy about the older methods of ironing out cultural difference. Apologies have been offered for the cruelties of colonial rule and a new configuration of ideas about human rights has done something to balance out the crudity of the sub-Darwinian models of cultural evolution that prevailed in the 19th century. And yet the default setting of modern society, westernizing technocratic rights oriented and committed to individual autonomy as an ideal is still to picture itself as the rational norm for fully flourishing human existence. Modern society doesn't really see itself as one culture among others. And this is why the record of modern, broadly post-16th century European encounter with the tribal other is illuminating in thinking about the much wider question of political tribalism. There's a fundamental irony here, you see the irony in the idea that the claim to universal validity, the universal obviousness of Western rationalism, that entails a sharply exclusionary rhetoric about what is not standard modern practice, even when the human rights culture of the day mandates some sort of tolerance for these non-standard communities. As will perhaps become clear, the lack of a fully coherent philosophical approach to human nature in modernity has a lot to do with the tensions, conflicts and imbalances that this leaves us with. But for our immediate purposes, this initial point is a fairly simple one. Modernity's rejection of an outmoded or superseded other is itself a tribal response, to use the word in its pejorative sense. And one of the problems of our contemporary cultural environment is that rational Western modernity doesn't see itself as a tribe or a culture among others, but the natural obvious setting in which human beings ought to live. Now, to identify modernity and the broadly enlightenment mindset as a form of tribalism is not necessarily to license any kind of relativism, nor is it to seek to reintroduce unchallengeable systems of traditional authority. It's simply to say that modernity becomes toxic at many levels if it loses the capacity for self-criticism, if it canonizes this myth of automatic improvement through time. I mentioned the phrase, being on the side of history. This is a wholly vacuous notion. If we want to speak of and support something we call a progressive political agenda, we need to be clear that we are assuming a doctrine of human nature and anthropology that has some sort of normative force. We're not appealing to the naked process of change alone as such for moral or indeed rational justification. Being on the side of history suggests quite simply that the mere passage of time makes things right. But history as you may have noticed, doesn't actually have sides. We can tell many diverse stories of social and intellectual change. And when we tell these stories in terms of advance or triumph, liberation or enlightenment, we're not simply chronicling a process of change which naturally and automatically moves towards the good. We're telling a selective story a story about learning. We learn the positions we take. We learn the moral perspectives we acquire. We don't acquire them automatically, and we don't acquire them simply by pointing to how history unfolds. And that's why I would say learning is a key concept in any challenge to tribalism in its malign sense. People write these days quite a bit about the tribalizing of politics. And what they usually mean by that is a politics of what I'd call zero-sum conflict, polarised interest groups, and indeed also assumptions about the necessary interdependence of moral priorities that aren't actually obviously connected with each other, but are generally held by the same sort of people. A politics in which it's very hard to admit having learned anything or having anything to learn. It's a bit paradoxical. We've seen that the superior claim of modernity is that it's what happens when things change and other forms of life fail to change. But the truth is that change is not the same as learning, let alone advance. Learning is a way of telling the story of change, selecting this or that feature of what is remembered making and testing links that are not instantly self-evident, identifying moments of significant conflict and the perceptions of choices to be made. Like all serious forms of knowledge, learning is a cultural affair bound up with inherited and internalized habits of seeing and representing. So when learning occurs, It's when habits that have hitherto seemed trustworthy or sustainable come under strain. They encounter difficulty and frustration. New habits and strategies emerge to modify what we have been taking for granted. And when we tell a story like that, we tell a story of how what once seemed adequate to us may be challenged after all. That moment of conflict and difficulty may turn out to be generative, to be creative, and therefore our practices of knowing and understanding are about responding with tolerable success to what we don't control. Learning is a matter of how we negotiate the difficulties we encounter. The things we take for granted are challenged, opened up and taken forward. And as I've said, to tell such a story, a story about learning, is to tell a selective value-charged story about our past, not just to appeal to naked change in itself. But now this becomes a bit contemporary because we have to ask what happens when we are forgetting how to tell a story like that, a story about learning. When we forget, we come to resist the idea that what we take for granted as settled is not instantly self-evident. We lose the sense that engagement with the alien and the unplanned is a potential source of insight or enrichment. It's as though if we admitted that we had learned we admitted the story of our learning, our discernment, we'd somehow become weaker by that admission. We'd admit that where we are and what we think and what we're committed to is not, after all, obvious. If we admit we have had to learn through complex and protracted interactions, we admit that a story of self-evident advance, an inevitable, unarguable advance in truthfulness, will not work. Contingency creeps in. Things didn't have to be like this, and so things don't now have to be like this. Or to put it more positively, argument and discovery are not over. There's always work to do in establishing and defending the truth or rightness of a consensus. Now, I realize that to the extent that this suggests an unwelcome strenuousness about our social discourse and argument, an acceptance of ongoing difficulty, there is a degree of pressure around. It's easier to minimize the scope of this narrative of learning, easier to maximize the area of what is taken to be obviously and timelessly true, what is simply given, if we're free enough and wise enough to open our eyes. And when people deny that things are given or obvious, that comes to be seen either as a malign form of anti-humanism or as a mark of mental and spiritual enslavement. So the more a social or moral position is taken to be timelessly self-evident in this way, the more moral reproach is attached to any doubt or denial of it. And the less room remains for any attempt at finding a common language for debate and shared reflection. This particular aspect of political discourse is I would say currently one of the major challenges to the future of democracy. A political debate in which your opponent is not merely mistaken, unwise or uninformed, but malignant and or sub-rational is one in which the winner and the loser in an election, let's say, have no stake in accommodating one another after the vote. There are one or two examples of this which may come to mind in various bits of the world. <laughs> And this, of course, slips readily into majoritarian tyranny, however close a vote may be. What happens when a democratic majority emerges in a society is that this establishes roughly what a majority of citizens can recognize to be lawful. And what it requires of the minority is to abide by that recognition. A majority has a certain presumptive right to make the rules, and a claim to be obeyed, in the terms in which elective democracy is usually set up. But what a majority vote doesn't and cannot establish is what must be recognized as true or good. Majorities can make rules, but they can't make consciences. And that's why working democracies must make provision, should make provision, for liberty of conscience. Because without liberty of conscience, no intelligible debate continues. If a majority vote were to establish what is true, good, or right, there would be nothing more to argue about. A majority vote establishes what is lawful, but it does not close down debate. And if no intelligible debate continues, the elective process itself becomes an empty sham, a contest that's purely about interest and power. And it's a moot question how far down this road some modern democracies have actually travelled. I shall make a statement on yesterday's Supreme Court verdict and the way forward for this paralysed parliament. Three years ago, three years ago, more people voted to leave the European Union than have ever voted for any party or proposition in
0: our history. They want Brexit done, I want exit done, and people want us out on October the 31st. On RN, this is Soul Search, exploring the present and future of our democracies with the former Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams. As a current member of the crossbench in the UK's House of Lords, he knows firsthand that political debate can turn toxic, especially in the Brexit era. But overcoming our present tribalism is no mean thing. He says it demands more from us than civility, more even than empathy or rationality, as Williams explained in a recent talk at the Australian Catholic University.
1: What we call tribalism in its contemporary forms is, I'm suggesting, a curious, rather ironic byproduct of rationalism. It takes for granted that we don't need to rehearse the labour and negotiation, the difficulties, the false starts by which moral and political perspectives are arrived at. Because then we don't need to see the perspective of the other as, to borrow a phrase from the late Gillian Rose, invested. We don't have to see the other as themselves developing a way of responding to and managing certain sorts of difficulty that I or we can actually recognize. And that means that political tribalism is above all a shrinkage of the scope of mutual recognition. I resolve not to think of the other's view as sharing any of the moral anxieties or the emotional tensions that I experience. Because as soon as I recognize the moral investment of a real human other, the obviousness of my own position doesn't seem so clear. There are all kinds of moral issues on which, in our society, deeply polarized views prevail. Somebody who supports the lawfulness of assisted dying will characterize the principled opponent as emotionally deaf to the force of unmanageable suffering. I've seen articles on this which suggest that the opponent of assisted dying is positively committed to increasing people's suffering. And I have tried not to mention the war, but not entirely successfully. Brexiteers and (laughs) anti-Brexiteers, grieve with me. (laughs) Brexiteers and anti-Brexiteers alike describe their opponents as undermining democracy the green activist who argues against the fiction of limitless economic growth is blind to the pauperizing of vulnerable workers. And so on, and so on. Fill in the blanks. Now, let me be clear. I'm not making any sort of bland appeal for civility in political debate, though that would be nice. (laughs) Nor am I saying that it is somehow wrong to have clear and convinced views on all or any of these issues. Far from it. An appeal for civility alone would too easily be reduced to an appeal not to be so emotionally invested in our beliefs, and that's a rather futile recommendation because beliefs that matter to us are beliefs that matter to us. It is rather an appeal for some kind of work here, the work to grasp the history and structure of the way the stranger, the other, is invested in their view. For any such work to advance, there has to be an exercise in translating the investment of the other into terms that resonate for me. And this points in the direction of one of the central aspects in any discourse that tries to get beyond tribalism. The formation of as much of a shared language as possible. Shared languages, you see, don't necessarily entail shared views. We shout at one another in English. (laughs) But they do enable a more protracted engagement on issues, an engagement that doesn't instantly turn into the naked contest of power, the yes or no of who is stronger. It means the effort involved for the pro-life activist in seeing the provider of abortion as driven by a recognizable compassion for women deprived of agency and dignity. It doesn't compromise where the pro-life activist is coming from, but it looks for a moral resonance with the other. Likewise, it involves the pro-choice activist in recognizing that the opponent of abortion is not driven by a single-minded determination to humiliate or oppress women. As I've said, the point is in no way to relativize or weaken commitments. It is to try and discover what the grammar of another person's moral energy has in common with my own. I've been greatly helped and illuminated by one of the publications that this institute has put out, the admirable book of essays called The Forgotten People. And I note there a commitment to precisely this task. It's a helpful take in noting that movement happens only in controversy when we see that debate is not necessarily about different solutions to a single clearly defined problem, but about the factors that make us see problems differently in the first place. When these factors are brought into the open, articulated and explored, it is harder to see a conflict wholly in terms of absolute victory and absolute defeat. To recognize a credible moral perspective in the program of a successful majority allows a minority to see where argument can continue. To recognize that an unsuccessful minority holds views with at least some roots in common with those of the winners is to find a rationale for accommodating that minority. And crucially, this labor of recognition can also serve in helping to identify and conceptually isolate those conflicts that really are beyond ordinary argument and negotiation. What theologians sometimes refer to as the Ultima Ratio questions where common language seems to break down because some political interest is systematically and deliberately not recognizing the claims of fellow human beings. Totalitarian and genocidal systems are by definition systems embodying that refusal. But for our present purpose and for the ordinary business of politics in the societies we recognize, the important thing is to grant that political tribalism insofar as it inexorably moves towards delegitimizing the other in debate, is a fertile seedbed for totalitarianism. And if this is more than just an appeal for civility, it's also more than a plea just for empathy. Mere fellow feeling doesn't specify any solution to serious conflicts of power and to the inevitabilities of loss or cost in the processes of negotiating a shared future. Empathy alone doesn't provide strategy, ways of action, ways of resolution. If we're able intelligently to recognize the history of someone else's moral perspective and able also to explore more deeply and more intelligently our own history in the same way, this should illuminate the fact that in the actual world of moral decision-making, especially when it's being done in the public and political sphere, it's virtually impossible to find courses of action that are without cost. That is, without some sacrifice of an ideal level of doing equal justice to diverse claims. And this in turn might dispose us to see our decision-making as a matter of clarifying problems, identifying claims as clearly as possible, and looking for what I'd like to call a sustainable way forward. And this notion of a sustainable way forward is key, I would say, to overcoming political tribalism. One of the difficulties in a climate so much dominated by the discourse of rights is the temptation to cast our decision-making in terms of simple binary alternatives of whether we are or are not honoring or realizing some clearly defined and discrete right. Not recognizing a right in these terms would simply constitute a kind of legal tort taking something unlawfully from its owner. Now, I don't, as a matter of fact, share the skepticism about human rights discourse that's popular among some of my theological colleagues. But I do believe it's essential for an intelligent, compassionate, and to use the word again, sustainable political democracy, to focus more on manageable solutions to specific unjust situations rather than being paralyzed by maximalist general demands based in rights. In other words, rather than instantly appealing to highly specific rights, the immediate task is to solve a problem in a way that will last. Let me take an example that many Western societies will currently recognize, a particularly neuralgic example. There are many specific injustices and disproportionate challenges and sufferings experienced by people who are gender dysphoric, or who've undergone reassignment, treatment, and surgery. The default conservative position that simply declares the whole thing to be impossible, misguided, blasphemous, or whatever, has generally not been troubled to attend to the particular narratives of these persons, and is inclined to read the phenomenon as necessarily just bound up with a campaign of relativism and revisionism about human nature. But some sorts of generalizing language about transgender rights have not helped, I would argue, because they move attention away from finding sustainable solutions to particular challenges or injustices and play into the hands of conservative polemicists. The right that matters is the liberty to act within the shared life of a society without unjust restraint. That's the basis of any defensible doctrine of human rights. The freedom to contribute a perspective of self-understanding to democratic argument and shared discernment. If we begin from that basic account of right, the liberty to act within the shared life of a society without unjust restraint, that is more helpful guide than a list of particular entitlements whose denial is a taking away of lawfully owned property. But that does mean a lot of hard work in identifying where the specific injustices are, a lot of creativity and flexibility in finding the kinds of solution that will actually last, that will be broadly acceptable to a very morally diverse wider community. So all this and more is entailed, I'd say, in the business of looking for elements of common language. We could express it slightly differently by saying it has to do with the work of constructing a culture together, a culture that's capable of containing disagreement and managing change in ways that don't violently disrupt the life of a society. In the present political climate in many developed societies, there is heavy emphasis on prescriptive and protective legislation, and this is in significant measure a mark of cultural failure and dysfunction. Some citizens, usually with good reason, are persuaded they can't trust their society to respect and protect their interests. And so legislation around all sorts of questions from hate speech to gender pay gaps reflects an underlying anxiety that some groups are being silenced, intimidated or otherwise disadvantaged to a level where the informal workings of the culture just don't seem able to offer a positive adjustment in their favour. The larger and more complex the social unit, the more such legislated guarantees seem unavoidable. Hence, the realm of regulation and rights discourse steadily expands in our developed societies. The trouble is that the apparent simplicity and decisiveness of a legal guarantee can give us an alibi for the more protracted work of cultural change and adjustment which involves just the kind of attentive narrative exchanges that I've identified as building shared languages and avoiding zero-sum standoffs. The labor of cultural change, then, is a matter of looking for or constructing contexts in which narrative sharing is possible, understanding where others are coming from. And different groups and interests can work together at what a manageable, sustainable future might look like. Acknowledging that such a future is not going to be simply the embodiment of any one group's ideals. And this labor involves a general willingness to learn, both in the sense of learning to understand an alien perspective, and in the sense of devising new pathways and strategies along with them. It acknowledges above all, the fact that the other is not going away. The other is not only still here, but has a legitimate claim to be here as a culture that has managed, endured, and made sense. The indispensable contribution of European enlightenment for all its shadows is the way it challenges any authority that refuses to explore and justify its perspectives. Ironically, one of its great insights is the reminder that authorities have histories. The mistake is to see this as a simple denial of any form of inherited custom or belief because of the conviction that the act of critical exploration arises from a universal rationality that needs no justification. It's parallel, perhaps, to the question I've discussed elsewhere of the distinction between what I've called procedural and programmatic secularism in society. The difference between a good critical habit or practice essential to any sober humanism, and the systematic delegitimizing of all habits and practices, except those of a self-conscious, instrumentalist version of intellectual modernity. So, summing up so far, pushing back against political tribalism means recovering an awareness of what human learning is actually like as a time-taking, relationally-shaped process, with a sense of purposiveness built into it, an inchoate and often elusive or unspoken conviction about what human meaning is at its fullest. That's more than just an intellectually dressed up chronological snobbery and superstition. It means nourishing those practices and institutions that allow space for hearing the memory of discovery and conviction that lies behind an opponent's view and seeking to recognize what I call comparable kinds of moral energy. And it means accepting that the other, even the opponent, has a continuing presence and stake in a social territory that is shared, so that the task becomes one of finding what sustains that shared territory and defends us from zero-sum violence in our conflicts. In plainer terms, beyond political tribalism, lies a deeper literacy about our histories, a commitment to identifying the grammar of a common language and the work of negotiating a shared future by looking for solutions that have a degree of durability and credibility, even if they are no one's absolute ideal.
0: You're listening to Soul Search on RN with me, Meredith Lake. And the big question now is how do we actually resist political tribalism and work towards a shared future? Do we need to, you know, just put religion behind us? Or is there something in religious communities, in their practices and institutions that might help us here? As a public theologian and former Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams thinks there is.
1: The state that acknowledges freedom of religious belief and behaviour is acknowledging that it is not the sole measure of the identity of its citizens. And it's thus acknowledging that a citizen may quite properly regard himself or herself as answerable to something more than the commands of a superior political power. From this acknowledgement, fully understood, flows a whole range of elements in what we now take for granted in democratic states, especially the rule of law and the treatment of minorities. Everything is politics, but politics is not everything, it has been said. Or to put it rather differently, the truly emancipated citizen is somebody who's not just a citizen, who has a hinterland of formation, affiliation, and conviction, not specified simply by civic identity and controlled by political power. Civic virtue is burned up with affiliations and convictions that have more than just civic roots and sanctions. So a first respect in which the religious community is a resource against reductive polarization in politics is the reminder it offers that purely political debates are not routinely about issues of final and absolute import. They are typically debates about method and process, and the underlying debates about ends rather than means are not going to be decided by political methods that is, by the contingency of who it is that happens to be exercising power. And this also means that resistance to the determinations of political power in the name of conviction or conscience can't, except in the most extreme of circumstances, and not even then with absolute clarity, can't be conducted by violence, by a counterbid for coercive force. I'm thinking here of Thomas Aquinas' complex and sophisticated discussion of when it might be right to exercise force against a tyrannous government, and also of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's agonized reflections on the legitimacy of taking up arms against Adolf Hitler. Neither gives us a simple prescription for universal revolution. Politics is not everything. The most significant kinds of human solidarity don't derive from or depend on the state. And as a range of 19th and 20th century Christian political thinkers have argued, Lord Acton, John Neville Figgis, and of course successive popes in encyclicals on social teaching, the apparatus of the state is there to serve as a broker of interests between a natural diversity of local and voluntary networks of affiliation rather than a source of orthodoxy. Whatever orthodoxies the state imposes need to be justified as intrinsic to its essential role of securing protection under law for everyone. The orthodoxy of the state, in other words, is not a substantive declaration of moral principles covering the whole ground of human behavior, but a set of procedural guarantees for what you might call cohesive exercise of liberty. The state's role may also, of course, involve calling communities to account from time to time for their own failures in securing protection or access to law for the vulnerable. And all our churches in my own country and elsewhere have a good deal to answer for in their historic failings in this respect. And I put my hand up there for the significance of the state's pressure on the church to be its best self, as you might say. But we can go further and look at the positive as well as the negative in the role of communities of belief. Religious discourse is heavily invested in narratives about learning. Most notably, what we call the Abrahamic traditions of faith tell stories of unexpected developments, initiatives from beyond history, which clarify and reconfigure human goals. The law of Moses, the recital of the Quran, and of course the creation of a new and unlimited form of human solidarity and mutuality in the church, the body of Christ. To belong in communities thus created is to be offered a variety of models of learning and in all the major traditions to be reminded of the gap between what's verbally and conceptually communicated or enacted in gesture, habit, and ritual, and the inexhaustible agency from which life flows. In the Christian tradition, this is the apophatic style of theology, reminding us that truthful speech about the divine reality is not necessarily exhaustive, final, definitive speech. There is always more to see and more to learn and to enjoy. And the paradigm of faithful life is precisely discipleship, the status of a learner. The classics of spiritual practice set out the shape of a journey of discovery. History and the acceptance of incomplete and developing understanding are central themes for most religious traditions, certainly for our Christian tradition. And the very idea of tradition, contrary to the conventional modern understanding of it as static and beyond argument, carries the assumption of a continuing process of acquiring the skills of perception and judgment, testing these skills in changing contexts. The subject or agent in a religious context is a person in the process of formation within a community that teaches habits of seeing and responding, and that urges caution about supposing we have access to final certainty simply as individuals equipped with tools of reasoning. I quoted Robert Bringhurst earlier from a book he co-wrote with another noted Canadian thinker and writer, Jan Zwicky, And she sums up the ways in which we might redefine classical Socratic virtues for our own day, as a blend of self-awareness, courage, self-control, justice, contemplative practice, and compassion. And her discussion of contemplative practice is an exploration of some of the resources offered by traditions that train us in attention to what is before us, the silencing of our aggressive, fearful, greedy ego. As she says, this does not always accompany or arise from or lead to specific religious commitment. But she's clear that the kind of ritual practice that slows and focuses our seeing of the world is a distinctive contribution that religious tradition makes, a contribution essential for the balanced well being of person and community. And this slowed and focused attention is a habit that cannot survive in the neighborhood of the sort of tribal allegiances that make my value or security dependent on knowing who my enemy is and where I've got to fortify my border. Religion, theology, liturgical tradition and so on can of course themselves become yet another tribal system of allegiances. As we all know, there is polarization between, in communities of faith, between guardians of tradition and revisionists To identify as a traditionalist is to define an essentially political stance. And so I would argue to do much less than justice to tradition itself as a mode of prolonged learning and exposure to truth. The sad fact is that as some have put it in recent discussions, tradition is an orphan in the contemporary cultural climate. We no longer really know how it works or why. And when we simply regard it as the subject of a traditionalist option, we misunderstand something about the very nature of tradition itself. A tradition is an unself conscious continuity of exploration, transmission, and understanding. But the trouble is that one of the things we just can't do is construct a program to teach us to be unself conscious. And as I noted earlier, part of the characteristic struggle of modernity arises from the effort to resolve by prescription what is better resolved by culture. We need to be asking what the communities, institutions and practices are that allow a more comprehensive social imagination to come to birth. Not to seek a program to teach us unselfconsciousness, consciousness but to look around and see what sorts of communities and interest groups actually teach attention take us beyond tribalism and polarization and see what can be learned from them. Nurturing imagination in this way includes that patient attention to stories and priorities not native to us that we were reflecting on a bit earlier. And that requires constructing environments in which there is enough trust for such things to be articulated. That in turn means finding common activities and purposes so that we grasp that in some respects the other's investment is like our own. You can think of some very simple examples. The sports team or the choir, or something outcome-focused, the credit union, the school parents' association. But of course, we may also think of the religious community. And evidence suggests a very high level of local involvement by people with religious convictions in activities like the ones I've just listed. To discover or rediscover forms of human solidarity and exchange that don't depend on identifying enemies and are not so driven as to find no time for mutual listening is perhaps the most significant preservative for law-governed democracy in contemporary societies. In other words, let's shift the focus slightly from any attempt at messianically reconfiguring how democracy works and look at how people in fact cooperate and move beyond tribalism in the local setting, because they do, and we need to look at that, learn from it, and see what kinds of attention are at work in it. It may seem a long way from theories of modernity and tradition, but it puts a bit of flesh on what lives look like on the other side of tribalism. But the thesis of this lecture, finally, is not just about community organizing as means of social salvation. It's also, that the presence in complex and pluralist societies of some groups that hold themselves accountable to more than an immediate social consensus is something democratic societies should be glad of. That's to say the somewhat gritty presence of religiously committed communities with moral convictions that are not necessarily those of a majority should be welcomed rather than being a source of embarrassment or hostility. The presence of such communities keeps fundamental arguments alive. It obliges settled secular perspectives to articulate the argument and justification for what they take for granted. And it witnesses to what somebody recently in a French study called the longue durée of human civilization. Human civilization has taken a long time to get where it is. We have learned. And that reminds modernity of how other sometimes very alien cultures, have managed their environment. None of this, I've said, is an appeal to reverse the enlightenment challenge to arbitrary autocracy. None of this is a bid to establish religious authorities as arbiters of law and ethics. None of this is relativizing the achievement of experimental and theoretical science. But it is to put down a serious caution against the idea that the enlightened state is the universal arbiter of conviction because this risks binding any kind of public moral discernment to the power of a majority. The deepest problem with political tribalism is that it turns its back on the possibility of horizons expanding even where fundamental orientations don't change radically. And correspondingly, the major challenge of moving beyond such tribalism with its scapegoating and demonizing and lack of collective self-scrutiny is the building of a culture that is confident and trustful enough to give time for perspectives to interact and interrogate one another and themselves. Building such a culture is intrinsic to building something more than a strong state or nation. It's the creation of a durable human solidarity within and between states, and of communities of faith unapologetic but reflective, critical, and exploratory, are part of this as they should be and need to be, we may yet salvage an intelligent, compassionate, and pluralist democracy from the wreckage of so much contemporary political practice. From the point of view of one particular faith at least, this is a faint but not delusive shadow of the vision in Christian scripture of the innumerable multitude from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, finally united in the loving recognition of one another because they all recognise the infinite act and gift to which every finite being must
0: respond. Rowan Williams, former Archbishop of Canterbury, now Master of Magdalen College at Cambridge University. He was in Australia last month to give the annual P.M. Glynn Lecture on Religion, Law and Public Life at the Australian Catholic University. And you've heard that lecture today thanks to Soul Search producer Mariam Shahab and to sound engineers Emerus Cronin and Anne-Marie de If you missed some of today's show, or if you'd like to keep mulling over all those ideas, head online to the Soul Search website where you can listen again. You can also catch up and subscribe to the podcast with the ABC Listen app. I've sure found myself thinking about what Williams had to say as I've been digesting the news this week. My name's Meredith Lake, and next time on the show, an inside look at Australian Pentecostalism.
1: If you understand that Pentecostalism is an extremely various set of technologies which are appropriated by people in their own situations, and then taken in all sorts of different
0: directions, then you understand that the Prime Minister is, in a sense, typical of a particular, publicly visible form of Pentecostalism in Australia, but he's not typical of
1: Pentecostalism around the world, as we say, the typical Pentecostal is a 27-year-old
0: Brazilian woman. Pentecostalism, the world's fastest-growing form of Christianity, with quite a story right here in Australia. So catch us again next time for that on Soul Search, here on RN.